This is Journeys in Podcasting, and we are sitting in the post-ITP camp, and today we'll be talking to M.H. Brahmani. You are just finishing two years of the master's program yes, uh, I just at graduated. Um, uh, actually, they just emailed me that your certificate is ready, so... So, just before we start, I want to contextualize this, and then uh, I specifically picked you to interview because I found that like a lot of the thinking you did in your project was treading a lot of the same ground that I had been reading about over the last six months or so. And that you overlay a lot with constructivist thinkers in education, such as Piaget, which you talk about a lot in your project. But before we get to that, uh, I don't know much about how you got to New York. So what is your background? What did you do? I only know you within the walls of ITP as the guy who does photography and does some pretty interesting screen work. So if you don't mind, yeah. Is it too complicated? Can you? It's uh, it's like I always have issue talking about because like uh, I don't know what to exclude things that I really identify as my background. You'll understand anything I say. I really it really is on my. So many people so, here at ITP come from so, vastly different yeah. disciplines and fields. I found like the fact that you are in photography. Uh, why don't we start with that? Like, yeah, what so, did you study? So photography? photography came from something weirder, and that's uh, astronomy. Throughout my high school and early college, I studied astronomy for it was about six years. Astronomy, we have like two observatories in Tehran for education purposes, because because uh, of the history of you know all the astronomers there, um, specifically in like the Muslim age. So it's like kind of uh, honored. I, anyway, so yeah, I studied that. My father was a photographer for a while, but uh, he had a camera. He had an A1 program. Uh, Canon A1 program with a 50-1.4 uh, lens, and which is like the default lens. I started using that, and I like photography in general. But then, I, I uh, as, uh, through astronomy and astronomical photography, I really got to know the camera. So uh, I learned photography through there. And then, whenever there is astronomy, there's like nature. So like you know, at night you photograph the sky, and at day you photograph wherever. You know, because you try to get away from the city, so you're probably in a nice place. It's astronomy that got me into uh, photography and got me really good in it. And, uh, and then I started to work as a professional commercial photographer, form, uh, found a friend. Meanwhile, I, I'm studying uh, software engineering in school. So CS, computer science, software engineering as my bachelor's. So that took about seven years. Uh, I extended to seven years because you have to go to military service as a male, 18-year-old and above male in Iran, unless like, you're really sick. But um, or unless you're studying, so seven years is like the maximum allowed. So I extended that. So I started software engineering, and while I was doing that, I formed this, my team called Vortex Effects. We were a freelance contractor for ad agencies, and through that, I. We quickly shifted to video because of the HDSLR revolution. I bought a 7D at that time, uh, like the beginning of my career, and uh, we ended up doing video, of course, and uh, uh, I ended up making uh, projects for you know Nestle, Huawei, Samsung in Iran. So I threw like the ad agencies because they, they don't have to be like you can't directly work with any of these corporations. They write a big contract with like a whole agency and they outsource it and we were one of those. I also became an Adobe certified expert 
It's it's a kind of an okay. I don't know. It's a big deal uh, here. It's not, but it was. I was the first one in Iran. They didn't have Iran on their list, so well, they have a educator certificate as well. So yeah, like, but like it, I do in the, the education world, that's a pretty desired thing if you can get the the, the specialist certificate. Oh yeah, the uh, the, the Adobe instructor. The thing is, like uh, Adobe had really banned Iran. Like <laughs> you can't even enter their website through like Iran. Uh, because of the sanctions. Yeah, so like uh, they were kind of iffy if like uh, when they wanted to take the exam from me. Anyways, huh. and the last two years before I came here, I uh, I got in uh, the, the two years before I, you know, applied and tried to apply to media technology. I realized there's media technology as a field, like you know, MIT Media Lab and mm. ITP in uh, US. I, so I, I realized, oh, I can like do this general media stuff that I was doing as like an academic thing. I wanted to like go to the military service and just do my thing with my team. No, uh, I realized I can study for it and I got serious in like media in general mm. and uh, went back and like went to like Coursera, tried to like, you know, uh, strengthen my like base and um, I happened to then become the through like the I went to this uh, Iranian game institute uh, game development institute which is like a government paid thing to make games in Iran and through that I became the uh, vice chair of Tehran ACMC graph professional chapter for the two years that I was in Iran so we held a, a lot of events you know for artists to get them interested in tech and for tech people to get them into and so I got into really deep in this world in general. And then I got accepted to NYU and I, I applied and got accepted. Let's talk about your thesis project because I think it puts a lot of these things mm -hmm. into play. And so you, you've worked with augmented reality and you're mm -hmm. solving the problem of the parallax that as you move through space, from two different points, mm. things you know, perspectives will change. I mean, I, I can explain and, it, uh, and, but that's the technical but side. Yeah. Let me jump in. I think if you can bring out the technical part, um, I want to jump to this one question because one thing that you talked about in your presentation is that the military are, are one of the few that have used the transparent screen uh, in an effective way to mm -hmm. produce this actionable data. Mm -hmm. I, I've recently been reading a little bit about um, heads up displays. The no, the visual um, models that they train pilots with. So the the UDA model, for example, is I mean, it's very basic. It's orient, observe, decide, act, mm -hmm. and they train them in these like rapid mental cycles so that as they are using these kind of instrumentation, they know how to come to quick decisions. But what was fascinating to me was about the screen was this overlay of representational knowledge. Yes. with knowledge that's right there, yes. you know, on the other side of the screen as they're watching planes fly around in front of them. Yes. Um, I thought that was a nice hybrid use of kind of the human centaur of using yeah. the technology yeah. uh, to extend your grasp on your environment. Yeah. How did you come to this project and maybe explain a little bit of the technical aspects of it? But yeah, the uh, pilots are really, I just want to like get that out of my head, pilots are really situationally aware. They train them like snipers to have a really great working memory and take note of things and keep them there. So it's just kind of like sweet. That connects to it because you're kind of mentioning it, but you're kind of men uh, pointing out how uh, these soldiers are basically like trained to be cyborgs because like uh, that instrumentation is basically their limbs and built around them and like, you know, like a jet plane. It's just, so like small it is, it's just the, it's for that pilot and it is turning him into like this machine and uh, like extending his limbs and uh, 
also his uh, inputs, basically. We have a limited... I get into how I got it through this... Uh, well, that, when I first came to ITP camp, that was the whole first summer that I was mm -hmm. here, was trying to grok this kind of physical computing thing and what that really means for our perceptions, so yeah. that you can make things, you know, if you just talk about like wavelengths that are invisible to our senses, yes. but then once you get into physical computing, now these things are, we can create visualizations and, and sense them. Yeah, in a way you are uh, converting it into your, into the senses that you already have. So you don't, it's like, you don't see UV, you will never see UV. You can just uh, capture it and then turn it into uh, visible light. Mm. So you can see it. And that's, uh, that's, that's what the pilot is doing with the heads up. I mean, they're doing with the heads up display of the pilot too. It's like uh, you don't know. You don't. You can't guess the height. You can't guess the temperature, the speed. You can. Mm -hmm. you won't, we will be far off. So here you go. This is uh, this, uh, data is added to your. It's translated into a thing, an input that you understand. Here, mm -hmm. like it could be numbers and a visual that you can just get or we can think about their thermal camera, it's IR, converted into, uh, again, visible light for them to see and target. So it brings it out of a theoretical knowledge of these wavelengths into a physical experience that you can actually represent them in a form. So these are two, uh, I, I, I should have, shouldn't have mixed these two. It, what it is, like in one word, is a, a large heads-up display or like large AR window. You can think of a heads-up display as an AR window. Mm -hmm. So heads-up displays are, yes, like used in the military and uh, recently in the you know, aut automotive, uh, in cars. They are these transparent windows that the driver or the pilot looks through that to the environment in front of them. And that transparent glass would display data about what the driver or the pilot is looking at. Um, so, you know, uh, possible threats, like, or uh, they have a, a virtual horizon and elevation, all the information that they need without having to look down. So that's why it's a heads-up display. Heads-up display have to show information that matches with the background. You saw probably seeing games, like when they lock on the other jet, it follows the jet. But the problem is uh, if you like go and draw a circle on your glass, uh, uh, on your glass window right now and like circle like whatever some, uh, something on the other on the other side of the window like a tree and circle around the tree if you move back or move around that circle won't match that tree anymore because mm -hmm. your head is moving and um, that circle is closer to you than that tree mm -hmm. so it moves more visually in your field of view than the tree does when you move left to right. That's parallax. So when you move laterally, you move from left to right, or like top to bottom, doesn't matter. And if there are things in front of you that one is close to you, one is further than you, when you move laterally, the, the one that's closer to you moves more than the one, uh, than the thing that's behind you, uh, further from you. Mm -hmm. That's parallax. And it happens because of perspective and foreshortening, basically. It's like mm -hmm. if things that are closer are like exponentially bigger, it also means that they move exponentially more as well. How do they solve that in heads-up displays? If you ever work with like a red dot site on like a, I don't know, I mean, some American people don't like guns, but uh, it's on, we do use it on telescopes. 
but it's mostly used in guns. If, if you played like Call of Duty, you would see like the holographic sights. These are uh, built to project things onto infinity. So things that are in infinity, that means like they're further than like six meters. You know, I don't know how 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 much is that in Imperial like. Uh, 18 feet, 20 yeah, feet. 20 feet. Yeah. Further than that, it just doesn't really move much. When you move about, you can move as a pilot or a driver. You, know? mm. you can move like a few, you know, a few inches. You don't move much. So things that are like far don't really move much when you move a little. The heads-up displays are built to display data about things that are really far away. But different than like a Google Glass and other types so of So yeah, Google reality. Glass is different because it's like on your eye. That's a different concept. So like it's it's mounted on your head. It's yeah. It's almost like an extension so of. So you don't of have that eye anymore. And the yeah. thing is like your eye movement doesn't have parallax. That's mm -hmm. what, uh, whenever I want to show people what parallax is like. Uh, whoever's listening, just hold your finger in front of you. Uh, just move your uh, uh, rotate your head from left to right, and the finger moves compared to the background. But if you just move your eye to, from left to right, it doesn't move. Because your eye is rotating closer to what we call the no parallax point. You have that on the cameras too. Like uh, if you rotate the camera from the base, which is, you know, the threading is, yeah, you would get parallax. But there is a point on the lens that you can test, you can only test and find it. That's called the no parallax point. Close to the focus point, but not necessarily. If you rotate the camera from there, there will be no parallax. That's how we get, take good panoramas. Because like if you rotate the camera and images move, they won't really match with each other. Mm -hmm. So, if you, but if you rotate it from the no parallax point, to just not have to deal with this, they just uh, display data about infinity. But what I made is to correct this parallax, so you can uh, display data uh, about things that are close to you. So, in effect, I made a big window you can, which displays data like an AR glass does. But you don't have to wear anything; you just have to stand behind it. It tracks your head and knows wh uh, where you're looking. It corrects the movement of your head and uh, makes sure that whatever image uh, you see corresponds to the background. And technically right now we're talking about a screen, we're talking about uh, an image projected on the screen, and yeah, we're yeah, talking so, uh, about- Yeah, so for my transparent display, con uh, I use- Connect, that's-, that's Yeah, that's, I use Connect to track the head and uh, do, uh, to and find out you know, where anyone's looking. That's the easiest way. But you can use anything that can track uh, anyone's head in 3D space. Mm -hmm. And my transparent display, what I used is, uh, I just stretched some tall material or, they call it, uh, uh, they have a specific name, but uh, you can just go and buy some tall, like for $10 from like- This is the screen itself. Yeah, this is just a mesh. It, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a fine mesh. You probably uh, see in like theater, they use, uh, well, special material to do these holograms. Yeah. Right, so, which are not holograms, but anyways, it's the same concept. And I put a projector, so that's the easiest way you can get a transparent display. But there are legitimately transparent OLED displays that uh, they were being manufactured, but then they stopped because nobody was using them, probably because they don't correspond to the image in the background. <laughs> but um, yeah, and like they were only marketed to like shops for like, you know, the door of the fridge. You know, really but this is the same material that goes like when Tupac is recreated on stage. Oh yeah, so that's the project. I'm just talking about how you can get a display that's transparent. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one method is to stretch a, a mesh material, mm -hmm. scrim, they call it scrim. A scrim or mesh material, project on it with a projector from like an angle. 
That's one way to get a transparent-ish display. And if like, your environment is dark, it works out. But uh, you can also buy an OLED screen that is already transparent. Those are a thing. And uh, you know, there are other material you can project on. And you can use like the um, Pepper's Ghost effect. Just make up a transparent display because it has to be transparent to correspond to the background. Mm. It's AR, so. And uh, if you have a Kinect, I can give you a parallax corrected uh, AR window. So that's all you need. I, I did have the chance to sample it and it, it, it's pretty impressive. I mean, you, you walk up to it and it catches your head if, yeah. if one person is in the scene and then it basically just like tracks you wherever you go within about an eight, eight square foot area. Yeah, it's like uh, the area that Kinect can track and also yeah. like... Uh, and also these are, I, I feel like Kinect is, uh, it's been around for a long time, but it's it's still nascent in some ways uh, that the next version of this, which is supposed to come out now. Um, it came out, the Kinect Azure, whatever. We were supposed to have one by now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, like our order got mixed up and yeah. Rob told me. But uh, they are out there. They're being used. <laughs> Sorry, I'm giggling because I didn't realize that you had just pulled off of a, a vapor and so I just see smoke like coming out from it. I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> you didn't see this? <laughs> I mean, this was there, but this is because <laughs> okay. that, that is a thicker... Um, this is the so part... So, meaning that, that this... That's okay, we'll, we'll leave it in. It's we'll, 666. We'll keep, we'll keep it authentic. There's a reason for it's it. It's right at 666. Yeah. Well. <laughs> He's breathing fire at 666. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, um, Bill Hickster. I, I think what I was trying to get at was... Uh, this was impressive. But I'm thinking, like, down the road, this could become oh my God, like, yeah. mind-blowing. So as we're looking at all of the different options of augmented reality, and I think I have notes on this for our interview a little bit later as well, mm -hmm. but looking at holograms, looking at uh, projection mapping, um, looking at Google Glass-type things, and then looking at screen work, um, you know, especially when you're dealing with, like, large spaces, this could become a really exciting area to move into, even for schools to think about, because it could provide a much cheaper way to do augmented reality within learning spaces. This is like the beauty of it because you're looking at it through your lens and uh -huh. that's like, it's a good way, segue to talk about why I made this. But yeah, you look at it and you see education. Whereas the military is looking at it like- The military you know, look at it like, yeah, targeting. And, yeah. I look at it, uh, for me it was like a, a philosophical tool to talk about uh, worldview and subjectivity and perception. Yeah. But this is, this is an example of why I made this and what the frame we're supposed to represent, which is like, um, everybody looks at a thing in their own way. Yeah. So a good metaphor for that. So if you come to ITP, um, uh, if ITPers are listening, they know what I'm talking about. There's a place we call the junk shelf, which is a, literally a shelf filled with junk. It's just chaos. Really, it's just like a bunch of shit. And, uh, <laughs> and you go there when you want to like build something and just you know, you might find a motor, you might find a piece, you might find like a, a piece of textile you need, some piece of acrylic you need. So it basically spreads itself in front of each individual depending on their need. And that's kind of like the, uh, like, uh, so this is the general reason, the general point I wanted to uh, make by building this. But um, yeah, for education, AR in its core, it's uh, data about data, it's metadata. And let's say data is the light that's hitting your eye, like the environment around you. And if I, want, if I wanted to uh, tell you something about the environment around you, you can basically boil it down to that. And uh, yeah, transparent displays as uh, you know, not head-mounted 
are not explored honestly at all. There are like installations that employ them, but they're not AR. They're just a transparent display. Mm. This is AR because it behaves like an like an AR thing. You just you're not it's not mounted on your head. It's a window that I can rebuild whatever, uh, re rebuild the whole environment behind it and in 3D or like put any overlay I want in 3D on it and you would, you know, act as like a 3D object in the air, like in normal AR, but mm -hmm. uh, it's just a big window. Because I, I, in my opening talk, uh, the, the title is, uh, you know, Reframe an Interactive Telecommunications Medium. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't want to do, uh, I'm not saying it's like a, it's a, it's a medium to be explored, like there's so much to do here. And the second thing is, my friend said, it's just like the fact that it's not a screen, it's a window. Mm -hmm. And like that, there's something there, uh, it's kind of sim simple, but there's something deep there, I guess, of like, yeah, that hasn't been explored much, probably because of that non-trackability of it. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see like, what can be done. So education, um, for example, one, uh, one thing that I'm really interested in because we have a lot of historical thousands of year old ruins in like Persepolis in Iran and you know, I can have a huge um, window reframe in front of it and an individual can walk behind it and I can rebuild what it was through AR. Yeah, because I can put a 3D object in there and it reacts to like it's there. Right. I can rebuild that ruins for you and show you how it was and it has the correct sense of scale. Like yeah, VR can accomplish that. Actual AR also can accomplish that. But you just have to walk yeah, behind so it. Going back to the education side of it, yeah. um, to me, as exciting as VR is because it offers this uh, field trip in the classroom, experiential learning, I mean I, I wish that we treated it more as real experiential learning. I've, I've been reading yeah. up on that all summer of how different schools and different education projects are using it and there's it's getting more interesting the downside of course is that normally it's like one person yes. in the space so you have to create some sort of stadium seating and some sort of video display so it becomes interactive well, the for everyone. The upside is that uh, um, you, can, you can very cheaply if you have a big projector and a connect you can make a, an experience for six individual people yeah right because connect can track six people if your window is big enough, I can have, you know, six windows on it. I didn't know that Connect could track six people. Connect 2 can track six people, Connect Azure probably even more. Yeah. Because they're like multiple Connect. So, so then what that, let me finish what maybe your thought is that um, I have worked with giant screens, which mm -hmm. creates its own kind of immersive effect. You know, 180 curve display mm -hmm. where your foveal vision is this kind of... Um, illusion of precision you can only look at really one thing at a time but when the screen is that big it really focuses on that like when you bring 25 kids into that space they're all their their eyes can shoot all over the place mm -hmm. and it just invites this point and share um, mm -hmm. whereas when you have big screen areas to work with multiple people are in the environment together yeah so the social construction is cranked up yeah so uh, it really uh, i'm really thinking of uh, how it can work out for multiple people the limitations for now is one uh, i can't use it for things that are too close because of the issue of double vision right so it's one image so it works great on a, one camera because it has one lens but because you have two eyes and that image is one 
again, if you go and draw on your glass, you see what I mean. If you get too close to it, you, you, should, you can either look at the image or the background because mm. uh, well, they're so far. Like it's, one is really close to you, the other one's really far. So I purposefully made this big so it's something you walk up to and you don't need to get too close to have the experience. So that's limitation number one. And yeah, limitation number two is that it's ideal for one person. So what I meant is that you can actually like, like this big board, you can divide it into like three smaller screens. That's like one way of doing it for the six different people. But uh, the thing is like, in, an, in some way it's nice, you know, for like, uh, if you like kind of, uh, yeah, for education, it, it might be a hindrance. Unless like we make it really big and let kids just go wherever they want. And if I, you know, with Kinect Azure, I can track all of them uh, individually and uh, whenever they get close to like imagine like a big room like a museum in front of uh, all the displays there's also a transparent display mm -hmm. and everyone's tracked so whenever you get close to a screen I just automatically show data for you if someone stands next to you yeah there will be like an overlay but the thing is like your images wouldn't match yeah. So your projection would only make sense to your eye and where you're standing and well, their image would uh, I think there. What's there. most exciting to me is, well, I mean, it's already cool, but like what this could become, uh, this could take over this idea of like Google Ventures, for example, where they have 25 kids with head devices on. But then you take away this ability to look at the person next to you and really interact with them. If you can't see their whole face, it be that becomes a very different interaction. I'm excited about mm -hmm. environments where you go in together, but even yeah. if it's just a small group, it's already, at least it's a group that can share together and interact. Whereas once you put that head mask on, as cool as the effects are, yeah. uh, it's basically one person in that environment. Yeah. Let's jump to where you've been overlapping in your use of um, Piaget and, and schema and some readings I've been doing more recently on inactivism. I feel like you're extending the idea of knowledge as action upon the environment. The, I, I see this as like what inactivism is, is this enfolding of what information we can extract from our environment, combine it with the representations we have in our head, our schemas, uh -huh. and then what knowledge is in this pragmatic sense is this inaction is is like how you um, actually act upon the environment so that's that's umwelt yeah so i mean all of this fits into this umbrella of of constructivism mm -hmm. and and this calls up dewey um, activity theory of vygotsky i'm thinking of varela francisco varela is this embodied uh, mind that i most recently read and as i walk around itp i mm -hmm. am just constantly fascinated by this art as science, which is a big Dewey concept, actionable knowledge upon the environment, but through different mediums than we're normally used to thinking of as scientific. How does this relate to your own theory of knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, which epistemology, or delve into ontology, your idea of nature of being, which is more of a yeah. philosophical question? It's, it, I can look at it through through all of those lenses, but uh, well, let's start. I with, do have a beginning of uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, let's start with what with Piaget. With the, Piaget, yeah. I go like a step 
before Piaget. And because like, uh, I want to just explain what you said in my words. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually never heard uh, that word before. Uh, you said what? Inactivism, right? Uh, yeah, but this is something that Varela... Uh, I see, that's what... Like, that's his term. Mm -hmm. That's his uh, term. So yeah. uh, the way I describe it is that you think of the world around you in the modern age as like a world of objects and things. Uh, you might, you might not. It's sort of safe to say that's that's like a general uh, understanding of the world. I mean, that's how I understood the world as well. What I learned through uh, Piaget and um, uh, other psychologists, uh, especially Jung, is the idea of the world is not made of objects, but it's made out of potential. And not that it's not made of objects, but uh, for you as a living creature. Things are first a potential, as a like a kid understands a concept of a falling off place, but it doesn't know that like it's on a table or like on a cliff. And uh, even for a human being, a cliff is if you're next like standing over a cliff, it's a falling off place. That potential first, and then a uh, sort of like a rock formation. This is Gibson's ecological psychology that some things were born with that we innately know that like if you put a baby on a ledge it tends not to just walk off the ledge or, or crawl off the ledge mm -hmm. that it, it senses this depth yeah. of space and perhaps danger and whatever but what else. it's sensing yeah but, but what it's sensing is not the height it's not the you know uh, it doesn't have the schema but the built up feeling that like what it's avoiding is the falling off yeah. so another example is like if you have like a small step here for someone tall like me the potential, like when I look at that, I this is a stepping on place. Yeah. But for someone who's shorter than me, they would walk up to that. For them, it's a sitting on potential or like climb up potential. Based on my physicality, this these potentials change. So you have the, the sensors to sense the world. You know, the world is bigger or smaller than you or colder or warmer than you or, uh, you know, softer or harder than you. Because, you know, it's, this is hard, but it's harder than my skin. Yeah, but going back to this idea of the potentials, I'm also hearing a bit of Vygotsky and Tool, that Tool extends the, what we can grasp in our knowledge, his zone of proximal development, which in education is often misunderstood as like just next step learning. But it means that when you pick up a tool, now it extends what you're able to grasp in your field yes. of knowledge. It's an extension of what you're your brain. able to act upon. So yeah. that has like a physical computing kind of side to it. And yes. tool can be anything from the language we use to the people in our environment. So for example, in ITP, people are our tools in an extent. Like I know that you have the answers to my questions about yes. shutter speeds and you know, so this becomes like your dispersed knowledge tool yeah. or whatever. And you, yeah, and, and who you are, uh, as many people that know you, you are that many different versions, obviously. Mm. You don't even know yourself fully. Like, there's no one that knows you fully. Mm -hmm. And what you are is just a collection of these understandings, <laughs> yourself included. And, it's you know, funny because, like, with everything you say, I'm like, oh, this is Minsky, Society of the Mind. This is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, start, uh, I start class, you know, you start classifying. I'm happy that you're pointing these out because, like, uh, it's, it's uh, well, I, I mean, I, it's not like a lot of things I say are, they're not mine. I just, I read a lot for my thesis, but 
Uh, a lot of these, uh, they're just like, I, I, I listen to a lot of lectures, so if I can like point, uh, link them to like the philo mm. philosophical lineage, that would be amazing actually. So yeah, I, I'm happy that you're pointing, uh, pointing the, the references out. But yeah, that's, uh, that's, so that's the general, so that, that opens up, uh, you know, the, the whole faces thing that uh, we started to talk about before, uh, before we had to record. You know, the, the 3D printed faces, my, uh, you know, the, that video I, I showed, the perceptual identity. I got to those faces, which is, the title is, yeah, I uh, quickly realized that uh, in Manhattan I'm, uh, I'm like brown, and, but in Bed-Stuy, like, I'm, I'm white to them. Through conversations I realized, like, oh, like you know they stopped me one day i was like this group of older and he like held my hand and said like you know like all of our problems is because of you white people I'm like dude I'm, I'm not even from around here and he's like you you white people are all the same cool so i'm like oh so i'm getting the short end of the stick in <laughs> both uh, you know manhattan and brooklyn i was like but well, that's interesting how come I, how come i I'm brown so in see, one place you're, you're and white in another place. <laughs> you're blamed for all gentrification of white people in Brooklyn and then in Manhattan. And stealing your jobs and stuff, I guess. Well, yeah. Stealing our... Exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's Manhattan. Actually, it's worse than that. Let's, let's backstep and then we'll forward step back to that particular theme because I but, thought your project on that was, was really interesting and it, it will feed into our um, idea of color and association. Mm -hmm. But going back but, a little bit to this idea of like your... Classification system. Um, yeah, because you you talk a lot about you know you have yourself and your your perspective, and then everything in the world will be associated from that perspective. So if something's bigger than you, smaller than you, colder than you, warmer than you. Yeah. And as you were talking about that, I immediately was going back to Varela, and and he explains this um, idea of in Buddhism of that we're constantly categorizing the world between that which is pleasant, that which is unpleasant, and that which is neutral, that you have, you're indifferent to. Which is interesting, because I was thinking about that one day, that how come we can only think in like that one axis? It's either up or down, like less or more. Like, anyways, but continue. Yeah, and no, I think it get well, let me, let me complete yeah, this, this question, and then we'll jump to the next one. Mm -hmm. We mentioned this idea of the ecological psychology that, that according to the ecological psychologist the environment offers information yeah then according to Varela and and a lot of the phenomenologists is that mm -hmm. we act upon the environment and we call that information forth yes. so that's that's exactly the definition of umwelt and yeah. autopoiesis so if if, we, if you look up umwelt um W-E-L-T, it comes from, it's a German word, of course, mean, meaning environment or surroundings. Uh, Welt is world, so like you're the world around you. It's the biological foundations that lie at the very epicenter of the study of both, co both communication and signification in the human. So this guy, uh, Uxkel, theorized that organisms can have different Umwelten, that means like different worlds around them, even though they share the same environment. So like a frog, in a pond has a whole different understanding of the environment than the fish in the pond or like the flower you know or the bird up there they have way different understanding of the world different potentials like you know a uh, a bird to me a, a bear to me is dangerous but a bear to like a tree is benign like it's uh, but it's like the bear is like inherently scary to me like or a snake you know they're just like we're just classically uh, we have classical enemies and we're scared of like sharp things. Cockroach, like, 
they don't care, I guess. Like, they don't care if they see a bear. It's just like another big thing, like on the other big things. So, yeah, Umwelt is that understanding of the environment or that environment that you have. So and then the, the, the relationship that you have with it is called autopoiesis. Let's move this step further beyond the ecological psychology part and into this idea that you were talking about potentials, that as we look upon things, we can sense the potential. I guess Gibson talks about that as like affordances of like, if you see a tool, your ability to use that tool depend on your former experiences, your abilities, so your competencies with the tool, mm-hmm. your beliefs, like your belief system of what can be accomplished with that tool, mm-hmm. and your goals, like, like what goals can you set with that. I was recently reading about something called shape scission, is that we also look at objects and we can move them forward and backwards in time according to the, how they will um, poke holes in or warp or melt. And this was a kind of a newer thing to me because I think we're always thinking about things as like fixed objects but this has more of a systems thinking thing of like, oh, well, you, you look at this piece of metal and you can see that it has a hole in it. And so you immediately create the simulation of how that hole was formed. Uh, you know, what would it wants to. But uh, honestly, the thing that I see, I look at an object like this microphone and see first is everything I see, I see like the usage of it first, right? So, like, so I look at it, I'm like, oh, that's a logo that has holes. I don't think of how it's made. If I want to, I can. Yeah. But where I go first is like, it has holes to like, you know, So for example, air. we're looking this at- is, This is, you know, this has, uh, because of the, these are screws. I can tell that these are screws. Yeah. So that's the, that's the function. I can screw it, right? That's a, I can tell that's a button, like it, what it does. It's, it's a mute button. Don't, don't press that. I'm not going to press that. That's <laughs> so the volume. Like, the, these the, are like, yeah. But the, for example, the wire mesh around the top of the mic, of microphone, mm-hmm. uh, we can run the simulation in our head of how that was we bent and, and formed around if there. If you want, but that doesn't come, come automatically. And it's, not, it's, not, it's not a schema. Yeah, so going back to this like, idea of the affordances, if, if you don't have those experiences mm-hmm. and you don't have those abilities, then it's, it may be outside. You, you might not even detect the object. It might be outside of your belief system. So it might, you might not even perceive it. You, yeah. might, you might, I mean, you most probably don't even, I mean, unless it's like really there, you won't even perceive it. Yeah. Like the junk shelf. Like, you won't even see a lot of, okay, the, a great, uh, you know that it's a very famous video that, uh, you know, the uh, breakdancing bear and the basketball players. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. The, yeah. The, you're, you're watching the ball and then yes. the gorilla runs across yes. the... Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So same concept-ish, but uh, it's like, um, you know how... Okay, so this is, this is, like, this is a yeah, vaporizer. This is, Which I would have thought is like a giant USB. Exactly, but it's like you didn't notice it in my hand and you didn't know the function, right? Yeah. Now... If I tell you, because this happened to me, so you, you never see, saw these before, right? You, I have seen them before. You have seen them before. But not that friend that really didn't notice, uh, didn't notice them. And I told him, like, you've noticed that everybody has these uh, in the city, right? And she's like, no. I'm like, everybody has them. She's like, no. I'm, so I showed them how this works, right? I'll show you how this works. <laughs> so and then the next day she came to me and said, yeah, they're everywhere. So now she has the circuit to detect that. Yes. She has the schema. And, she's not under, and it's not under her control. It wasn't under her control to detect them, yeah. not detect them, and it's not under her control to detect them as well. Or you know this when you buy a new 
car or if you buy a new camera, like you notice it. You can like uh, you, you suddenly say, "Oh, how? Why is already having uh, have this car now?" No, so, just notice it more. So you, as a photographer, and you're using framing all the time. You're constantly working, creating perspective. You're excluding more than you're including. Is the way I, I like to look at it. Yeah, and you're constantly creating two-dimensional representation of three-dimensional yes. things. So, you, and I've I've been in your workshops before. I know you're you think through this like three-dimensional field at, yeah. at multiple levels. Now you're making these transparent screens and we're talking about this idea of affordances and tools and what they can possibly potentially do. Yeah. What, are, what is your vision for this thing? Like mm -hmm. what, what do you think so, can be done with it? The way I look at it, and just functionally speaking, and, and by function, I mean uh, the function it does in, as part of your perceptual system. Uh, is um, so again AR is uh, or heads-up displays at least are metadata they're data about data they're data about the environment and the light of the environment hitting your eye is data and I can show you data about this data and how do I do it I translate the, the, that data into a format that you can perceive and understand so it's like a bridging of this idea we're talking about of, of the two ideas of knowledge, the cognitive scientist who says that knowledge is representation on the head mm -hmm. and the phenomenologist yeah. that says, or the prag pragmatic person who says that no, knowledge is out here, it's in the world and it's action. It's both. No, I think pragmatists, uh, at least epistemologists say it's, it's, it's both. What I see is both this, in your head. Is that, that we can all become these these pilots, these cyborgs, as you called them. Well, are, I mean, as you know, you famously what Elon Musk said, like you're already cyborgs, like you already, always yeah. have your phone, like you, it's part of your brain, basically, part of your processing, just, you, we're already cyborgs. Yeah. But throwing it up, but head, there's like, heads up with display. this, what you're doing, because whenever two people are talking about a thing, if you're talking about this can of Pepsi, you're not talking about whenever you look at when I first saw Google Glass, mm -hmm. and I've never actually had one on, but I immediately, I do a lot of documentation within classrooms, or when I was working in schools I did. Mm -hmm. You know, I moved from ha carrying big cameras to even, but then I started documenting a lot with the phone just because it was less obtrusive. Mm -hmm. It just seemed to me a more invisible way to document. I always had my hands holding this thing. Mm -hmm. So once you throw in hands-free documentation, mm -hmm. It opens up, I imagine, an incredible realm of how you can document because now you are a living player in the environment. You're, you don't have to think of yourself as a documentarian as that, that once they open, put that device between themselves and the environment, mm -hmm. they are stepping out of it. They're stepping out of the inaction, inaction, inactive space. Mm -hmm. But once you put it on your head, your hands are free, now you're an active player in the environment. I mean, it sounds like a very simple concept, but it's actually, it really changes the way you would document. So in this idea of, of you know, screen space, we can have our hands free as opposed to having to hold a device up, put something on our head that removes ourselves from the immediate physical environment. Yeah. So that to me is the exciting part of this, is yeah. that you're talking about not only being able to include your social interactions, but you're talking about being able to include yourself and your body in that space as well. Yes, and um, uh, in effect you are 
you inevitably become part of that system. For example, like how close or far you are from a frame determines how big a crop of world you see. That's actually the first mechanic I played with. If you remember, I, my thesis installation is the pipe of Magritte's pipe on a canvas, and I just put it on a wall. If you're far from the frame, you, just, you can see a small area of the background. The crop is really small. So you can only see the pipe if you want, and I would detect the pipe for you. And if you get closer, you can see the whole painting now. I would detect the painting for you. By detect, uh, uh, I just you know put a box, one of those open, uh, one of those you know image, image recognition boxes in AI that they put like a box that says like pipe 0.98 accuracy. So just like I detect the pipe, I can detect the painting or like the whole wall that it's on it. Like which one do you want? Depends on you. Like what are you looking at? In your presentation of your thesis, you use the example of this dress. So it's, it's either perceived as white and gold or blue and black. Yeah. And you said that really one to two thirds uh, perceive this differently. Yeah. Uh, this is Always. Any room, show it to any room mm -hmm. on your phone. Everybody look at the same screen. Two thirds would I, I see it uh, black and blue, like, like the way it is. Yeah. And I mean, the way it originally was, not that the way it is, just like. And a third would see it as gold and white. So this overlaps with something that I walked into camp with this year, and that's uh, Joseph Albers' ideas about color and association, that, that how you perceive a color will be very dependent on its associative background, oh, what, yeah. what it's next to. Yeah. You take, and you use the same example of your... Yeah, it's um, called the brightness constancy. Uh, well, we call it illusions, but in, it's always important for me to... They're not illusions, they're just the way you see things. Yeah. And then, it, um, as I was explaining this, my project to you, you know, you, we were talking through colors and you walked me over to the window mm -hmm. and we were looking at the LED lights of the halal truck and, and you point out the blue ones are blurry and, yeah. and the red ones are crisp. Yes. Color is this psychological, it's a psychological phenomenon before it's physical fact. That, yes. Um, it's, and, and that yeah. calls in not just the association, but something you've kind of touched on a little bit is the cultural bracketing, is that how you name colors and, and what you call yes. upon, out of your environment. Yes. Uh, so we'll jump and, uh, back you, and you forth. You develop schemas for each. For example, orange in the English language and in the German language, as far as I know, did not exist until the fruit arrived on boats. Mm -hmm. And before that, it was just called yellow-red. Mm -hmm. I heard a crazier uh, uh, version of this. Evidently, the Greeks didn't have a concept of color blue, so their description of the sea is kind of wrong. So, so uh, I mean, it's not that long ago, considering evolution, but blue is the last, last spectrum for our cones to become sensitive, uh, for us to develop the cones sensitive to. Uh, think of it as like you, in your ear, you have like these hairs and they have different lengths that they absorb different wavelengths. So mm -hmm. that's how you can hear from 20 to 20,000 Hertz, theoretically. Same thing on your retina, you have these different, literally lengths of antennas. Uh, Eric Rosenthal explained this beautifully, but we developed the short waves, that means the blue waves, and uh, the violets, you know, just very recently. That's why if we have people who are colorblind, what they're missing usually is the short, the blues, the mm. short waves. So. so the Greeks were colorblind. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know, so I have to look into that. Uh, they no, but, but, but it calls uh, into question this idea of the 
color not just as the psychological phenomenon of what it's associated with, but what your experiences and your schemata, which are directly related to your use of language. It's crazier than that. It's famously the Native Americans uh, couldn't perceive the ships. Oh, I've never heard this. So, like, they could see, like, the water move, but, like, a ship was such a foreign concept, something that big, Um, on the water. Like, it took them a while to, like, just see it. Like, uh, you see these things all the time, that, like, you point something out and people can't see it. You have to really work. uh, 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 In astronomy, we see this all the time. There's something that's, like... Like uh, the the Pleiades cluster is a very famous object. It's like after moon, it's the other obvious thing in the sky in the northern hemisphere. You're like, it's uh, it's like this obvious thing. You're like, yeah, what is that? So in Iran, if I point, uh, if I say Parvin, which is the word, it's uh, I'm sorry, I'm giggling because that's my next question. But keep going. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, everybody knows it, and I can point it out to them. And uh, but here, uh, I say Pleiades, and I even point at, point it out. To me, it's it, it's as big as the moon. Like, it's a very obvious object, but people can't really uh, detect it, mm. uh, which is which was fascinating to me. Uh, but now I actually, because I, I I looked into that, uh, I you know had a dream about that incident of me. Trying to show this to someone. In your talk, for yeah. your thesis, you asked this question, I, I, uh, what is oh. uh, that? And, and you, yes. you, know, you dramatically asked this, and uh, I believe you're talking about moving between representations in the head and to objects in the world. In embodied cognition, a lot of reference goes to Lakoff, who talks about non-metaphorical thought only being possible when describing physical reality. That the greater the abstraction the more layers of metaphor we apply. Okay. Um, so your question of what is that raises the question of the validity of a Cartesian it, split. It's sadder of, than of that. A, of a Descartes-like, we can only trust representations in you the head. You said Descartes, it's great because, look, there aren't many things in the world in general that you can describe accurately without using abstractions. Like, not even without, like, just... Okay, like an apple, if there wasn't a word for apple, if you were to describe the apple, it's going to take you a while. Like, what is an apple? So, okay, let's say we know what fruit is, and you start, start describing an apple. Just the entry in, like, the, uh, in the dictionary for apple is longer than the word apple, right? I, I thought what you were talking about when you talked about what is that. Yeah, so what is... Yeah, yeah so, so yeah. So, and I, I thought what you were trying to get at is this kind of Cartesian split of... You know, Descartes was that, yes, that Cartesian, we can only okay, trust okay. our thoughts. Yeah. And, and that separates cognition from physical reality. Yeah. Whereas many phenomenologists, especially, and prag- pragmatists as well, say, well, no, I mean, we are not inseparable from our reality, our, our physical environments. We are part of our physical environments. Yes. And knowledge, which we think of is in the head, is actually something... Knowledge is stored uh, outside of you. I mean, we have that literally now with our phones. But mm. even without that, knowledge is stored outside of you. Knowledge is stored in your body. Uh, one of those things that Heinz von Forrester worked on is that like, uh, it's, you are your environment and in your environment is you because o- you can only perceive things that you can perceive. So what, what's not, not in your head, for the most part, doesn't exist to you, although it might affect you. You know, it's like the whole idea of uh, if a tree falls in a forest, no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound, you know? It doesn't. 
It doesn't. It makes <laughs> it makes air it makes air vibrate. But you know, sound is is a, is sound when it enters a person's ear or like a living creature. But uh, it does make the air move, but it doesn't make a sound. So it's like the same thing. To put what is that in the context of your project, what you're trying to get at is to call all of this into question by by having the screens and having this manipulation of the parallax of having it seemingly disappear is to call on this question of what augmented reality calls up of uh, trusting what's representational and trusting what's what's physically out there. Well, no. What was the, what is the what is that? Because what, what is that? So what, very, I, what I showed in the It was a very kind of like zen-like awakening thing that you threw out in your talk. What did, what did I, um, yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, if you know, if you knew how much preparation I did for that talk, you would slap in the face. What I showed at, at that moment uh, is this thing called droodles, D-R-O-O-D-L-E. And you probably know what a droodle is, just you probably know, didn't know that they're called droodles. A very famous one is just a circle within another circle. And the caption says, a cowboy from above, or a Mexican guy with a sombrero. It's like, well, sure, why not? Or it can be, or it's just, it's a button, it's like a, it's I, it's, what is that? So uh, as you get more symbolic in your thinking and uh, both your drawing, these are symbolic drawings. So if I ask you to draw a chair, if you don't know how to draw, you draw a symbolic chair. But that chair, you know, if, uh, it's not a chair. It's not at all a chair, it's just a bunch of lines. But it's a ch you, you project chair on it. Mm. We all recognize this chair. So, yeah, I showed when I say, like, what is that? Is, what's that? It's like, you can interpret, that is a lot of things. Of course, that's, a, that's an image somebody drew. Mm. But every physical object is also a different thing to every individual. And these frames were supposed to represent, I would have, like, three of them in one environment. And each would represent a different person's worldview, basically. What I was trying to do is, like, to softly call upon people you know, we all know the world is subjective, you know, ever since, you know, the Matrix, I guess, it's like pop knowledge now. So it doesn't really amuse anyone if I, like, tell you, like, did you know the world is subjective in your head? At least, like, not in our circles. Yeah, you know, you think you know, but do you know how much subjective something can be? So what I meant wasn't just, like, the dress. That's just the, phys that's just your sensors. We already know that we differ in our senses. Something is sweet to me and not sweet for you. Or like, you know, men and women, uh, women see way more shades of color because they have more variety in their cones. It's just denser. That's why like those nail polishes look identical to us and they're really different to them. Like part of the reason. Urban, urban people have more names for colors yes. than people who grow up just in one more naturalistic setting. They only have the colors within their space to work with, whereas yeah. because of fabrication and textiles and, and paint and everything, we have just a lot more. Yeah, we have, for every other sense, we have d differences and it's not a surprise. Mm. But vision, you all, you drink the same thing, you like it, I, it's like, it's, it's so normal. We're like, it's cold for me, it's not cold for you, all the time. But visual, vision, we're like, <sighs> it's like there's something about vision. But I'm going a step deeper than that. I'm like, no, 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 that's just a physical, just your senses sensing. Mm. What I'm talking about is 
after that, a level, uh, um, one level deeper is your understanding of the world. If the first one is the physical perception, your senses reacting to the stimulants around them, mm. like you have sensors for some things and they react, that's physical perception. And then a level inside is your metaphysical perception. It's like, okay, this microphone, the light is hitting, I see the image, and I say, like, what is this? This is a microphone that function thing. But the problem is, it's not a problem, of course, but like clearly you're, you, whatever you are, are closer to inside than the outside. Like, well, the signal takes a while from your sensor to get to your head. So clearly, wh wherever the processing is happening, it's inside first, and then like the data from the outside comes. And that is basically how a uh, neuron works. If, I mean, these days because of AI, uh, we all know like the basic structure of, of, of a neuron, which has like this, um, at least for uh, supervised learning, you have this prediction and then you have a test and then, you know, uh, it either passes the test or not. So you have to have this pre, there's this expectations, the test, like the reality, and then you either correct what you expected or it's right. If it's right, it's right. And that's like the basic function of a schema, also a neuron, you can think of it, but like life in general. No, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because like as you're explaining all this, I'm like, that's Dewey, that's uh, Vygotsky, and like you're different parts of these. No, say uh, say it, I'm, I'm happy. No, no, I mean, because the... The, his whole thing was, I mean, I think you're speaking of it from different angles, but it's it's the same it's, concept. It's it's very beautifully repeated. And so this is when I, remember I said Umwelt? Yeah. So this is like the, you know, early scheme for a circular feedback circle. Um, a theoretic biology, it's like 1920, right? Uxkel uh, came up with that concept. You can see like this is very similar to, if you go to the Umwelt uh, Wikipedia, it's very similar to like your standard neuron. You have like your test and then you have your correction. I'm gonna jump on the next question and this is more about your experience here at ITP and, and I guess it, it involves what you're talking about now, this idea of brain and technology and how AI confuses our theory of knowledge a little bit or recalls a lot of these things into question that have been hot topics for the last hundred years. We tend to explain the brain through metaphors of our current technology. Once upon a time it was explained as steam pumps, as electricity, as a computer. Embodied or grounded cognition, which is a little more recent, through interdisciplinary study has moved us past brain as a computer. And now AI is stirring up these concepts again. Effective AI, for example, something really popular at the MIT I mean, labs. Uh, so ITP is purposefully or inadvertently engaged in this exploration. How has your concept of brain been either validated or changed over the last two years here? Consciousness or brain? What we, do you say when you say brain? Well, that's, I mean, you mean like as a as like a biological. I think, okay. co I think cognitive processing is, like, I'm not talking about the biological, the cells in your yeah. head, I'm talking about cognition. Yeah. yeah. Although like, uh, they should go hand in hand because like, we're functionally understanding the brain more and more. Is that something you developed here at ITP or did you think that before? I developed here at ITP. No, because I kind of like developed... <laughs> because like I hear in the hallways things like, you know, people debating what's truly analog and what's truly digital because if you get digital down to its most basic roots it is analog and if you take analog down to its most basic roots it becomes a series of electrodes and 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 wavelengths and things uh, so anyway this is the kind of talk that you hear in the hallway. are normal <laughs> yeah 
This is the, you can go way crazy, but um, yeah, my understanding of the brain and like the human cognition and consciousness in general, it's like changed so much. But the thing is like, uh, just like, uh, I, not that like, that's a conversation you would, ITP would impose on you. It's just like a conversation, ITP is like, it's like a petri dish for every conversation. So I, if I, I, I was obsessed with these things, I started to get obsessed a year before ITP and I got like, I was really deep when I got into ITP. So, and I talk a lot as anybody who's listening can tell. So huh. I just, you can walk around here and talk about any topic. So yeah, my understanding of uh, all of this is really transformed and it's partially because I was able to like confirm what I, um, because a lot of times I just like talk about like um, uh, uh, representations of of the world, and if you know, I, I test it with other people, like the models I come up with, and people, if it makes sense for like people, I'm like, okay, I'll keep it, and then those are the things that end up me writing or like uh, just uttering right now. So, so I only have a month of this, and this is my third time to do it, and and it the first time was completely mind blowing. Mm-hmm. And the second time, I started to start some sense making of a lot of these things. And then this time has been more like, I don't want to say defining, but it's been more like, like processing, like how a lot of this fits into a theory of knowledge. I can't imagine spending two years in this space all the time and how that would affect your way of thinking of how knowledge works, science works, how pretty much everything. This is, for me, was sort of the un... Uh, looking at the layers of all of the systems just around us all the time. So walking around Lower East Side and grokking everything that's circuit, you know, because mm-hmm. you've just spent the last few days like playing with circuits off the Ardu- Arduino mm-hmm. and seeing how all of these things work. And then all of a sudden you realize this is how everything is set up. Yeah. To the social aspects of tearing apart your iPhone and realizing that this cobalt was mined by child labor in the Congo, where all of your things come from. And the systems thinking part is, is a big part of it. As like, I mentioned in my thesis presentation, it's ITP, like the master's program. I don't know about the camp, but the program is, I told them it's more of an inward journey. It's definitely- It's what kind of journey? It's an inward journey. You are, for the most part, struggling with yourself because there's no great and people are like generally very positive here so you don't hear a lot of any harsh judgment it is really nice but the thing is you know that judgment has to come from somewhere and uh, if it doesn't come from outside it comes from within in an environment that you can do anything there is no reason not to be there are no excuses i mean when everything else is perfect the problem is probably me if things aren't going the way you want you very quickly start to do a lot of soul searching of like what exactly are you doing and what's important for you and which direction are you moving towards especially at your third semester what is this especially in my case the new trump sanctions came that summer the first summer like after my second semester ended the dollar price in iran literally quadrupled that means my money is a quarter what it was so whatever expenses i have is quadrupled from now on and at the moment i have to like really really think like is this worth it is that class worth it or is this like for fun is fun okay is it wrong to have fun at this 
So I have to really think, and then you know, your I don't know priorities could, go. I don't know if I could think through it like that. I mean, the, the cost of the program is so. Yeah, I'm, I am on, on, on a scholarship. I, I, on a scholarship, but just like living here, just like I mean, it's just it's brutal. It's potentially really life changing. It's not like a fine arts program that you don't even know where it might lead. You can turn it completely into a startup if you want. Mm. Whatever you do, you know, you own everything. And some do. You can't blame the program for not having the potential if you like studied whatever like art history you know you knew where you were going this can go anywhere so it's you there's no one else it's it's you because you can see all these other people in the same desk next to you doing amazing things of course they're also freaking the fuck out you, you don't know that because you know you always compare so, your, who, who you who you are today well now we haven't really talked about someone else's it's like it's it's harsh so it's like a lot of soul-searching yeah we didn't really talk about the space itself although that is how i came to know about the program is because i was studying interactive learning spaces dan o'sullivan has a chapter in the book called make space called reprogrammable architecture and in the talk with him we talk a lot about this adjacent possible what you just mentioned that you're working and you can see the way that you all cram into spaces here there's just a lack of space, there's a scarcity of space. Yeah. But that scarcity of space encourages this, this adjacent possible. Yeah. You can see, oh, that guy's working on that, and so-and-so's working on that. And yeah. you know, that also foments that idea of the distributed teaching and learning as well, that mm -hmm. you learn really quickly who's good at what, how to get that information yes. from the. If you think about ITP floors, just like a giant brain, you can start connecting nodes of the brain to solve your problems yes. a lot more quickly. It's like going to school again, basically. You have that guy and that guy and that, 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 like, you have to learn to communicate as well. You have to be able to express your abilities and know how to ask for help, how to, you know, offer help even. Kind of a professional way of socializing. So it's like, okay, like, you're working with adults and people have abilities and you're gonna, like, in the future work in a lab or something. Can you work with people? It's like a boot camp, learn the hard way for that too. Yeah, but if, if you can communicate, if you can uh, uh, have your uh, friends enable you, oh my God, it's a launch pad. Yeah. So at the end of your talk, mm -hmm. very surprisingly, you just cut the talk short and you decide to spend your last moments that you have allotted to speak about community and how being here helped you find roots and identity yeah, yeah this is a pretty yeah. this is a pretty heavy moment in the talk <laughs> and it, you know i was thinking yeah. like wow i just want to talk to this guy about this project but i have to ask yeah. about this particular thing uh what has that process been like because i've heard a lot of people get very emotional um during yeah. the camp time here i've even heard people call it a cult and that's why people keep coming back a yeah, lot it is uh, very culty i mean it is also an amazing network, a professional network that people continue to come back and uh, hire out of the space or yeah. find their next job connection through the space. Yeah. I know that happens in the camp quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Even like as I was combing through emails this morning, people are sharing different job offers that are out there in California and other parts of the world. It's like interesting people come yeah. on this floor in general. Yeah. But there's like this weird, not weird, it's really healthy, this mentality of pushing others forward yes. to that I feel almost guilty when I come on the floor of like, I don't have my project defined. Because yes, people are immediately exactly. like, how can we help you? What are you interested in? And how can we push it forward? Yes, exactly. Again, like asking for help is an art. You have to learn. Like it's mm -hmm. all there. The office hours are there. 
but you have to go and take it and know how to use that like the time you get mm. right so uh, it's very like naturey in that regard it's like it's like this garden of eden <laughs> of like you just you know you have this uh, go and uh, just it's it, it, it's all you now and that's what i'm saying mm. of course like it has it has its limitations you can every place can be improved but for the most part it's just a big makerspace and that's like what i learned at first because uh, I was actually, I didn't like this place at first, you know, because uh, when I applied, I had this like idea of like a media lab place in mind. I'm going to do like research on media. Like mm. that was like, I want to be on the bleeding edge of the media research. And then I got here and then I realized like people are, have, are not from related backgrounds necessarily. And uh, doesn't seem, I asked about research they said we don't have any official research going on here i kind of freaked out i was like what is this like this is art school man <laughs> what am i saying what am i saying yeah <laughs> well because if you look at other programs like yeah. mit media lab they have very like defined roots and you get yeah. put on teams and they have a media studies area that's, yes. that works in tandem with them as well yeah. so that if you want to go into media research that's a different thing here so I, I that was just like you know for my my ignorance basically because i didn't know I mean, I, now, now I understand both places completely <laughs> and other places for that matter, uh, that, that I, but, but you have to go and experience it. So it took me a week or two to realize that, oh, it's, this place is exactly that. It's a, it doesn't have a direction necessarily. It's just a big makerspace. Every semester you have like 50 class options. You can't take all of them. You have to choose. What do you want? So it's like it can be a different route for, and it is a different route for each individual student, and that's the whole point. But it and has, when I got it, I was like, oh my god, this is the best place on earth. And to this day, this is the best place on earth. And I'm like, I thank whatever is up there that I ended up here. Like this is this is the place I sh should have ended up. In. And it has a narrative base. I mean, Red Burns began the program through the Sony Pack and that people are going to change the world because they're going to create their own narratives using this portable video recorder. She had this idea of YouTube in mind, Basically. but before YouTube, but yeah, yeah that, was, that was the beginning of ITP. And then the other people I've been listening to, uh, Clay Shirky, I guess, talks a lot about this cognitive surplus, and this is how you know, the world is going to become a better place. And then Rushkoff, who I don't think teaches here, um, but he's very connected here, once taught here, his most recent book, Team Human, about the humanizing effects of our technology mm -hmm. becoming a lost, mm -hmm. a, a lost art as well. When I come, I ask immediately to counselors, like, I'm interested in this, which of your professors uh, spoke to this you know, theory or whatever. And I wonder if you might walk us through a little bit about the influences or, or some of the stepping stones that you went through as you were creating your project. Where could people go investigate more? The project is called Reframe. The technical aspect of it, the tracking, the parallax, for that, because of astronomy and my knowledge of optics and like my first big photography project was a panoramic project, so I had to learn about parallax. So I had that in my head already. And um, there is this one article on Medium, uh, which is generally about the available technologies for what's called alternative displays. So it's written by uh, Blair Neal and the title is Survey of Alternative Display. Probably I'll be added to the next rendition, hopefully, I don't know. But uh, this is uh, it's a great article on all the all alternate ways of uh, displaying. So, you know, Pepper's Ghost, uh, this is what I used. Um, those are transparent displays. 
laser displays. I don't know. This is a oh cool. So it's just a giant catalog of the different yes. forms of. Yes, it's like you know Danny Rosen. Yeah, Danny Danny Rosen's here. Uh, one of our students, our residents, uh, Yesel. Her projects here. So yeah, it's like alternate displays, right? Um, this is because this is technically categorizes that. In your writing, you say my thesis draws heavily from inspirations of art, neurology, and yeah. psychology. So people want to go deeper into that. Where would you? Yeah, definitely, take them? definitely. My main inspiration is uh, at my studies. Uh, I studied perception on Coursera in Iran. That's the only thing I had access to to, to get quality education. When I decided to get better and apply, so I there's this course called uh, Visual Perception and the Brain on on Coursera by Dale Perfs, which is amazing definitely take that course truly changes how you understand well the world and how you understand the world <laughs> the, also this guy Bolato has uh, has this interesting book called deviate which is basically the book is trying to do what i try to do conceptually like make you think about thinking it's introspection metacognition mm -hmm. all i'm trying to do is to if possible if you're ready for it to wake up your metacognition seeing yourself see Second order cybernetics doesn't matter. Uh, those are like the main. Uh, that's the main source of where all things started. But on the metaphysical perception, or like your the worldview part of things, the work of Jonathan Haidt did that for me. Which with his book The Righteous Mind, really interesting and talks about a process that I also went through. You kind of realize. So first you realize you see the world through your lens, of course, like the subjectiveness. So you have to feel it really. I call it like a visceral feeling oh, there is this other way of looking at the world that I understand it, but had no idea existed. And it's totally different from me. The faces thing that I showed you, for a moment, a lot of people that I showed them, they realized from them like, oh, you're like white to someone. You think, but you kind of feel it like, oh, like there's this other person, this other African-American looks at me a whole other way and you really feel it. And you sh that shift, you really feel it. So that book is... More of that. And he has this cool article called The Emotional Dog and Its Rational Tail, which more opens this idea when I say, like, we go from the inside to the outside. Mm. It's also even the more inside is feelings. So uh, the idea is you first have a knee-jerk feeling reaction towards a concept, and then your logic follows it, tries to justify it. Um, the other uh, metaphor is, like, the elephant and its rider. The elephant, like, goes, the rider just tries to, like, so the elephant is the boss, like the writer just tries to kind of move the course, but this is a better one, the emotional dog and its rational tail. In the art world, a lot of people dealt with the idea of subjectivity and worldview, MC Escher. Later I realized was inspired by uh, Islamic art for his tessellations. Magritte very clearly communicates a lot of these ideas. Modern artists that play with perception, uh, like Robert Irwin and uh, James Turrell. Cool. Yeah, those are uh, those are great resources. But the article that really unlocked things for me and basically connected the idea of physical perception and then another world in your head, which is your meaning perception. Mm -hmm. Like for me to tell you, like function first and physicality second, uh, came from this article by Jordan Peterson called "The Psychoontological Analysis of Genesis." This is the one that opened up this idea of uh, axioms. And I realized the feeling I was trying to convey was basically like a visceral or like a very internal, very intuitive understanding of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. It's on the. It's like one of those really weird things which uh, says any like complex but coherent mathematical system has axioms in it that cannot be verified 
through the system itself and can only be verified from outside of it. It can only be described from outside of it. You just take it as it is. And whenever you try to describe that, you just put that system into another system. It's like... It almost sounds like gestalt uh, psychology of like part and whole, that the part is meaningless unless it's viewed in its entirety of being a piece of the system. Does it... Yeah, I mean, so I don't want to, I really don't want to like, what mathematicians hate, they're like, this is not a philosophical thing, you should ah. like make use of, but it basically <laughs> says there are no complete uh, mathematical systems, which is fine. So when you really understand that, the idea of uh, that system only can only be described with by, by being put into a bigger system, that concept, that function, it's very similar in just function, when you try to perceive yourself because the problem with perceiving yourself perceiving is you can only perceive yourself through the only means of perception that you have and as we know they're limited you can only see a part of the world around you and of course the data that you get out you have two issues one is you're always behind on your process things from hitting your sensors to get into your brain takes a while so you're always basically living in the past in some ways and even if we don't think about that. If you, when you try to perceive your own perception uh, or see yourself see, you're again looking through the same filters. It's like a thermostat, that's the example they use in cybernetics a lot. A thermostat perceives the world in a thermostat way. We understand the thermostat, but if the thermostat tries to understand itself one day, it can only do it through measuring the temperature <laughs> of itself. And that's all it understands about. It would never know what changed its goal in life from 72 to 75, which is very similar to that initial condition in the <laughs> neuron, but I'm not going to go into that. So that's a great article. Where do people go to find you? For now, I'm online um, on social media, on Instagram. I have a public page called sector underline alpha. That's my um, Instagram. I have a Twitter. I don't tweet much, but I, if I have a, something important to announce, I would definitely do it there. So that MH underline Rahmani. So MH and Rahmani is MH underline R-A-H-M-A-N-I. Is there any updates about my project? I'm kind of uh, at the moment in the process of writing the white papers and uh, document, documenting it to like send out to some journals, see what comes out of it. I want to reiterate that this is only a fraction of the kind of thinking that goes into this particular project. Oh yeah. But also like... Everyone, every thesis but, is... But the oh kind of God. thinking that you hear on the floors of, of ITP, even during the camp, it's a pretty fascinating place. Thanks for spending the time. We're gonna unplug here. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. That would be very fun. If you want to talk again, please let me know. Okay, cool. Yeah.